If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you believe that as a Christian your faith is true and unique, unlike any other, that your faith is different from all those who believe in other religions, if that describes you, then I would pose this question to you this morning. What is the evidence of that in your life? What is it exactly that separates you from the followers of those other religions? What is it in your life that you can point to as evidence that what you believe is true? Well, it certainly isn't sincerity. They went on in the video uh, to explain that there are people from all religions that are just as sincere about their beliefs as any Christian. It isn't that we have ancient scriptures to instruct us because many other religions have ancient scriptures that instruct their adherents, their followers. It isn't even a belief that Jesus was a real person who lived on the earth and taught what the Bible says that he taught because there are other religions that affirm the life and many of the teachings of Jesus. In fact, you can even believe that Jesus is God and not be a follower of his. James 2.19 says even the demons believe and shudder. So what is the evidence in your life that is singularly unique that sets your life apart from everyone who believes something different than what we believe? That is, first of all, I think, a fair question. And secondly, one that we should be able to answer when asked because there are a lot of professing Christians in our society there are a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but if there isn't a tangible difference, if there isn't observable evidence that something is different about Christians, I would first of all ask, should there be? And if there is evidence that our lives are different, then what is that evidence? What should people see in us that is different, that is unique? What, what is it that makes us recognizable from those who either uh, profess a different faith or even those who may be inauthentically professed to be a Christian. In other words, is there such a thing as a true believer? And if so, what sets them apart from everyone else? And look, we, we, um, we should actually care very deeply about this question because we are living in an age where Christianity is viewed by a large segment of our society as nothing more than a political movement. Some see it as nothing more than a social justice movement. Some believe it's simply a cultural tradition. Some say it's an antiquated religious system that is no longer relevant. Some see it merely as a mechanism for a few people to control and exploit the masses. And without a doubt, there have been men and women throughout the ages who have co-opted that term Christian for all of those purposes and more. And so when we use the term Christian in our society today, if we're being honest, it stirs no one. It scarcely garners a response at all because it has been so misapplied and so wrongly assigned to people and purposes that have little to nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his true believers. In the first century, when you said, I am a Christian, that was saying something. That could get you killed much like it can in other parts of the world today. It caused riots and revolts. The term Christian was a provocative and soul-stirring word. But why? Why did it provoke 
such powerful emotion and radical response from people then, when today, in much of uh, Western society at least, the title Christian invokes little more than uh, polite indifference. I believe it's because on the whole, society does not see in those claiming to be Christians today what they saw in those claiming to be Christians then. And listen, I'm not saying that we should long for riots and revolts and intense persecution, but I am saying that when we use that word Christian today, it should deeply stir the hearts and minds of people because of what that term is associated with in their hearts and minds. Not a political movement or a social cause or an ancient tradition, but a group of people who live in such a way publicly and privately that is so starkly contrasted with pop culture, so radical in its commitment that people cannot help but to be deeply moved every time they merely hear the word Christian, whether they believe as we do or not. Okay, I, I believe it's time for the true church, for true believers to reclaim that title, Christian to take it back from those who have maligned it so badly. And the way that we will do that is by showing the world what a true believer really is, which means there must be undeniable evidence that is observable in the life of every person that claims the title Christian for themselves to the degree that it evokes deep-seated feelings among those who hear it, which means true believers must be willing to accept the cost of discipleship. Because there is a cost involved. There is a cost involved when you truly follow Christ. And listen, once people begin to realize that claiming to be a Christian actually has a significant effect on our everyday lives, once they see the cost involved, those who are not actually committed to Christ will no longer claim an affiliation with Him. But as long as it costs us nothing then it will continue to be easy for anyone to use that title whenever it suits them, which is why no one in our society really cares if you're a Christian or not. We've sold a gospel to our culture that costs us nothing, and we did that believing that it would make following Jesus more appealing to more people when what it really did was cheapen the gospel so much that now people are completely indifferent toward Christ and his followers. You see, it's time that our communities and our cities and our citizens began to see some, some real hard evidence that we're true believers. And so what is that evidence? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us today as we continue our story in the gospel according to John. As Jesus in his farewell discourse, his final instructions to his disciples, he explains first that there is a difference between those who merely claim to believe in him and those who are his true followers, and what that difference is, the, the evidence of that difference and why it matters. So let's turn there together to John chapter 15. We'll have it up on the screen as well. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we'll work our way through the first 17 verses of this story today. Okay, We're going to start by reading the first two verses, chapter 15, 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So in ancient Israel, that was an agricultural society, and grapes were a key crop for them. And so there were a lot of metaphors throughout the Old Testament uh, relating to vines and vineyards. In fact, 
the vine was such a central theme for the Jewish people. It was a common symbol for wisdom. It represented uh, the dominion of the Messiah. Even the front of the temple was decorated with a golden vine. And so for Jesus to talk about vines and vine dressers and fruit would not have seemed strange at all uh, to the Jewish people in the first century. However, Jesus doesn't just talk about vines in general as a nice object lesson. He identifies himself as a vine and not just any vine, but as the true vine, which is quite significant because all throughout the Old Testament, the vineyard or the vine was also used as a symbol for Israel. God's covenant people. Some examples would be uh, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2.21. And yet consistently those Old Testament passages portray Israel as failing to produce good fruit. And so Jesus says something very provocative here. He refers to himself as the true vine. What he was saying is that I am the true Israel of God. I'm the fulfillment of that which was required by Israel in the Old Testament. And then he refers back to uh, Isaiah's first vineyard song in Isaiah 5, uh, 1 through 7, where God is depicted as attending his vineyard when Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. So he references a familiar passage of scripture here, which he did almost constantly. And so as usual, Jesus knows just how to get people's attention. As soon as he starts talking in just the first verse, he's already painted a very clear picture of himself as the true Israel of God in a way that everyone listening was sure to understand and to pay attention to. It's astounding to me how theologically rich, how deeply satisfying this gospel is and how much we can learn about Jesus from even just one uh, verse. The great Irish poet and theologian Richard Trench once said, it must occur to all who read these discourses preserved by John how simple the text looks and yet how transcendent is the thought when it is even dimly understood. John is sailing sky high, are we? It is the strongest food in the Bible. Seems Jesus never wasted a word. And nowhere is that more evident than in our story today. And what makes it even richer is the backdrop from where Jesus was teaching this metaphor of the vine and the vine dresser and the fruit. At the end of uh, chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, rise, let us go from here. And so the next reference to geography that we're given is in chapter 18, verse 1, where we're told that Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley east of Jerusalem to a garden, an olive grove on the other side. And not only were vineyards a common sight almost everywhere in the Holy Land as they are today, but for thousands of years, olive groves have been planted in and around vineyards. They, they share the same uh, need, the same growing conditions, and the olive trees would shield the grapevines from harsh weather. So it's quite probable here that Jesus is teaching his disciples about the vine and the vine dresser and the fruit as they travel through and to these great vineyards. It's brilliant, as always. Jesus uses his surroundings to teach such profoundly deep lessons to his disciples as they walk through these vineyards now. And he uses uh, to the greatest effect, okay? The vine dresser's primary responsibilities in the vineyard were to ensure the maximum amount of fruit production by removing the unfruitful branches, which could harbor disease and cause decay among the vines. Also, to prune away the branches uh, that were producing fruit, to prune away the dead parts so that they could produce more fruit. So Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
that it may bear more fruit. Meaning, first of all, there is a difference between those who merely claim to believe in him and those who are his true followers. And the evidence of that difference is the fruit that they produce or don't produce in their lives. Those who produce no fruit represent the people who claim to belong to Christ but are not true believers. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. While those who do bear fruit, which is a reference to our productivity in him, for him, those who are productive for the sake of the gospel represent true believers, okay? True believers bear fruit, which sounds really pleasant if you think about it. And yet he says that he prunes those uh, true believers so that they may bear more fruit or be even more productive. So how does that happen? Well, the word prunes in verse 2 is the Greek word kathairo, which in addition to pruning means to cleanse, uh, to clean, to purge, which is actually the meaning that Jesus intended here, which becomes clear in the next verse. But before we go there, I just want to clarify something about pruning, the cleaning process by the vine dresser. This was a metaphor for a very difficult uh, even at times painful process that is yet necessary for true believers to be able to continue to grow even healthier in the vine and to become even more productive for the cause of Christ. Just as the vine dresser would cut away the portions of the vine that were keeping it from bearing as much fruit as it otherwise could, sometimes he cuts out the parts of our lives that keep us from being all that we can be for Christ, which is necessary, but it also comes with a cost. It may be the loss of certain relationships that bear no fruit for Christ. It may be giving up aspects of our lives or habits or routines that are unproductive for the sake of the gospel. And that can be difficult. You know if you've been through it. I surely have. It can even be painful, which is precisely the point that Jesus is making here. Being a follower of his is costly. And yet when we submit to that process, in the end, we produce more fruit. We become more productive for him. There is more evidence in our lives of being a true believer, which should be the hallmark of the Christian life. So this is yet another passage of scripture, by the way, that contradicts the prosperity gospel that is so popular in some church circles. The idea that if we're true believers, we should never have to experience hardship or pain or suffering, or struggle, or any kind of discomfort at all. That we shouldn't have to labor through difficulty because God just wants us to be comfortable, to have bigger houses and newer cars, perfect health and whiter teeth. Problem is that's not what Jesus said. No, he said the Father, the vine dresser, prunes every branch. Every branch that bears fruit that it may bear more fruit. He wants us to produce fruit. He wants us to be productive. R.C. Sproul says, we think that because we're in Christian ministry, we do not have to be concerned about productivity. On the contrary, our calling as Christians is the highest calling there is. And the idea of being productive is not the invention of capitalism. It is the mandate of Christ. He saves us in our futility and calls us to be fruitful. And how does he accomplish that? By pruning. How many passages of Scripture describe the Father refining his people through trials and hardships? Isaiah 48.10 Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. 
First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are more passages like this than we have time for today. I love how the Scottish preacher Thomas Guthrie put it. Listen to this. He writes, It is rough work that polishes. Look at the pebbles on the shore, far inland where some arm of the sea thrusts itself deep into the bosom of the land and expanding into a salt lock lies girdled by the mountains, sheltered from the storms that agitate the deep. The pebbles on the beach are rough, not beautiful, angular, not rounded. It is where the long white lines of breakers roar and the rattling shingle is rolled about the strand that its pebbles are rounded and polished. As in nature, as in the arts, so in grace. It is rough treatment that gives souls as well as stones their luster. The more the diamond is cut, the brighter it sparkles. And in what seems hard dealing, their God has no end in view but to perfect his people's graces. At some point, if the church in America is going to continue to be effective throughout the world, if there is hope of producing more fruit in our future than the great missions era of our past, we must accept the fact that future fruitfulness comes by way of present pruning. Future fruitfulness comes by way of present pruning, the cleansing work that he's doing in your life today is intended to produce more spiritual fruit in your life tomorrow. This is the cost of discipleship. Psalm uh, 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Listen, if you're, if you're walking through the fire today, if the pruning shears are painfully cutting away the dead branches in your life, you can take solace in knowing that your tomorrow is very bright indeed. Because he only prunes those whom he loves. Paul Borthwick says that by the dawn of the 21st century, Christianity had become a truly global faith with Christians in Asia, Africa, and Latin America outpacing those in the rest of the world. There are now more Christians in China than in all of Europe, more Pentecostals in Brazil than in the United States, and more Anglicans in Kenya than in Great Britain, Canada, and the United States combined. Countries that were once destinations for Western missionaries are now sending their own missionaries to North America. Now that is in one sense wonderful that the gospel has been so effectively spread from North America around the world. At the same time, it is a bit frightening that those countries are having to send their own missionaries back to us now. My fear, for the reason that is happening, my fear is that the North American church has become so resistant to pruning, to cleaning, that we're producing less and less fruit. And as we'll see in the story today, as we continue, branches that produce no fruit are good for nothing but the fire. The point is, don't resist the pruning shears of the Father. Don't push back when He's cleansing you, when He's cleaning out the dead branches in your life through hardship and discipline and difficulty. Allow that refining work to change you, 
to make you better, which, uh, by the way, is just as much an act of love and grace in your life as is the comfort and peace that we experience when everything is going smoothly. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus says that his disciples are clean because of his word, meaning that his truth is in them now, so they belong to him, which he will expand on in the coming verses. And so in essence, his word of truth is the lifeblood of the vine flowing through the branches, which his word represents all that he is now. And so as we continue, we really now get into the meat of his teaching here as he begins to reveal to them the real difference between true believers and everyone else. You see, the, the fruit is the product of the true believer, but it's not what qualifies a person as a true believer. It's what identifies them as a true believer. What actually qualifies a person as a true believer, what actually makes them a part of the, the true vine, as Jesus refers to himself, is exactly what he's describing here in the next part of the story. And so pay particular attention as we read to how many times Jesus refers to us abiding in him. Verses 4 through 11. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, in the first seven uh, of those eight verses, Jesus talks about abiding ten different times. And as we've already seen this morning, he never wastes one single word. And so if he uses that word ten times in such a short part of his teaching, don't you think he was trying to get a point across? I'd say he was emphatically hammering a point home here that true believers abide in Christ the word abide in these verses is the Greek verb meno. It means to remain, to stay, to dwell in a given place. Okay, the, the answer to the question, what is the difference between true believers and those who merely claim to follow Christ, and, and you can include everyone else in the world who isn't a true believer and doesn't claim to be for that matter. The difference is that true believers abide in Christ. We remain in Him. We dwell we live in him as he lives in us. And the evidence of that is what we produce, the fruit that comes out of our lives. But the actual difference is not the fruit. It's the fact that we live in him and he lives in us. That's the real difference. You see, there are, there are lots of morally good people in this world who decide to do morally good things for all sorts of reasons. There are happy people in this world who are happy for all sorts of reasons, right? There are socially responsible people who do wonderful things for other people for all sorts of reasons. Honest people who are honest for all sorts of reasons. There are people who give themselves up to help others 
for all sorts of reasons. But there's only one group of people who do all of those things and much more because they have the spirit of the living God abiding in them as they abide in him. Those are true believers. Now in verses 4 and 5 he says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then Jesus says, For apart from me you can do nothing. Well, what about all those people in the world who do good things but don't abide in him? Why does he say that apart from him we can do nothing when there are people doing a lot of good things apart from him? It's because there's nothing that we can ever accomplish apart from Christ that has any eternal value. So even the very best humanitarian efforts by the most caring people in the world, if done apart from Christ, listen, hold absolutely no eternal value whatsoever. And if that seems a harsh thing to say, first of all, I didn't say it. Jesus did. John did. Peter did. Paul did. Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 1 John 2, 17, John says the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 2 Peter 3, 10, Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ Acts 20, 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, everything that is done apart from Christ, no matter how good it may seem to us, is done only on its own merit. It counts for nothing beyond that. It serves no purpose beyond this age or beyond this earth. It holds no eternal value. And so as noble as good deeds alone may seem, they are not the spiritual fruit that lasts forever. Well, why exactly? Why don't they last forever? Well, Jesus explains why in verse 8. He says, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, when it comes to those who do not abide in Christ, all of the best efforts by all of the most well-intentioned people in all of time over all of the world hold no eternal value. Why? Because they do not glorify the Father. He is glorified when those who abide in Him bear much fruit, according to Jesus. And so no matter how many good things we do, if we're not abiding in Him, those things do not bring him glory. So they hold no eternal value. 
So he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So ultimately, the end of everything good and bad and indifferent that is done by those who do not abide in Christ, the ultimate end for them and their works, according to Jesus, is destruction. But true believers are those who are in Christ, those who remain in Him, who abide in Him. This is Jesus describing people who are in constant and continual relationship with Him, daily living in Him, which is characterized externally by the fruit that we produce. So we're not in Him because we produce works. No, we produce works precisely because we are in Him. And the other side of that is his statement, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. Listen, guys, there is nothing in all of biblical theology that is more personally consequential than this. It does not get any more important than this in terms of understanding our salvation. Okay, it's not something that I want to be on the wrong side of. Because Jesus is painting a vivid picture here of a lot of people who claim to be his followers, people who claim to be Christians, who in the end will be gathered as dead branches and thrown into the fire even though they professed faith in him. Why? Because we're saved by his grace through our faith, not by a profession of faith. And yet when the faith is genuine, we abide in him and he in us. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I don't want to be on the wrong side of this story. I don't want any of you to be either. And of course, there's a tremendous amount of good fruit coming from this family of faith. I see it coming out of you every day, which is wonderful. I watched it all day yesterday. I'm simply saying, let's not rely on good deeds or good intentions for your eternity because even the greatest of deeds and the best of intentions will amount to nothing if we are not truly abiding, remaining in Jesus. True believers abide in Christ. Now then, let's keep reading as Jesus brings this teaching to an astonishing climax. Let's read verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." This teaching by Jesus from the very beginning was already a, a profound a paradigm shift for these Jewish believers. Their entire lives, they've been taught about their people, about Israel as God's chosen race, all of the prophecies and teachings about Israel being the vine of God. And in verse 1, Jesus says, I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. I'm the true Israel. That was a sensational thing to say to a bunch of Jews. And then he goes on to explain that many who represent themselves as a part of the vine will actually be removed as dead branches because they do not abide in the true vine, which again is a sobering, if not shocking, revelation, especially for this Jewish audience. 
And if all of that isn't provocative enough, he makes a truly amazing statement. He says, by the way, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now to us, this may sound just like a really sweet and personable and comforting thing to say, a, a kind gesture to endear his followers to him, but this was anything but a kind gesture by Jesus. In all of the Old Testament scriptures, only Abraham and by implication Moses were called friends of God. The Jewish people knew that, and of course, they absolutely revered Abraham and Moses because of the uniquely close relationship that those two men in all of history had with God and the revelation of God that they received because of that close relationship. And now Jesus, who has made it clear that he's one with the Father, that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Israel, God in the flesh, he says to them, because of me, now all true believers are friends of God. He says, you're all friends of mine. I cannot overstate the stunning, jaw-dropping effect this must have had on those who are listening and should have on us today. The idea of a rabbi in first century Hebrew culture calling a disciple friend would have been unthinkable. But that's just what Jesus does. And yet his statement is even far more startling than that because Christ followers in ancient times considered themselves to be slaves of Christ. In fact, one of the most common uh, words used in the New Testament to describe Christians is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. It's used 127 times in the New Testament. True believers are repeatedly referred to as slaves of Christ in the Bible. Now, if the idea of a rabbi calling a disciple friend was unthinkable, how much more utterly ridiculous would it be for a master to call his slave a friend? But that's exactly what Jesus does. This was earth-shattering revelation for all true believers because Jesus is now painting a completely new picture of the relationship between God and his followers than was previously imaginable even in their wildest dreams. If you're a true believer... If you abide in him today, he now calls you friend. We have access to God. We can speak to him and he speaks to us. We can abide in him as he abides in us. We have an advocate, a defender, a teacher, a master that calls us friend. This was and is one of the truly astounding differences between the true believer and everyone else. The access that we've been given to the almighty creator God because we abide in him and he abides in us. We are friends of God. And yet that's not where Jesus leaves the lesson because he's giving it in the shadow of the cross upon which in just a few hours he will prove his love for us in an undeniable way by doing the very thing that he commanded us to do, to lay down our lives for each other. And so he brings the lesson back to the beginning where he started. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you 
And then he explains why he chose us. He says that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In other words, this newfound status as Jesus' friend is not an idle privilege. It carries with it a solemn responsibility, and by the way, at great personal cost. This is not a nice suggestion. No, he commands us to go and bear fruit. And what does that fruit look like? Verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, being a true believer will cost you everything. And when true believers begin living like that, only those who are willing to pay that price will be willing to make that claim. I'm a Christian. So when the church is known as nothing more than a political movement or a social justice movement or a, a cultural tradition, an antiquated religious system that's no longer relevant, maybe a way for a few people to control many, when, when no one bats an eye when the subject of Christianity comes up in the conversation, when the church has been summarily dismissed by our culture as irrelevant and ineffective, which is the case in much of our society today, then it is time for us to take another look at how Jesus described true believers and then ask ourselves, are we really living like that? Because there are a lot of organizations, uh, political organizations and civic organizations and community organizations that do all sorts of good things, and that's great. But what's the difference between them and the church? We're living in a crucial hour in this country. And we have a choice to make. We can either allow the church to conform to the world or we can allow the church to transform the world. And if our choice is the latter, that means we're going to have to live like the true believers that we are. We're going to have to bear fruit, not like the fruit the world bears. We're going to have to bear fruit that can only come through those who abide in Him. And what that looks like is people laying their lives down for one another. It's a costly calling, to be sure. But that's the difference. We have the living God living inside of us. And by that alone, we are able to live like He did as friends of God. That's the difference. And I think it's time for true believers to begin reclaiming that title, Christian, because it isn't just a political movement or a social movement or a religious tradition. No, we have the spirit of the living God coursing through us. We're supposed to be different from everyone else, even from all of the dead branches that claim to be true believers, but are in fact not producing fruit that glorifies God. This is the very essence of being a Christian. Giving up our lives for the church, for other true believers, which happens to be a profoundly radical way to live your life. 
And it is how the Western church will once again become a transforming force in the world. I'm convinced it is how that word Christian will once again provoke a deep-seated reaction by all those who hear it every time it is uttered because of the inescapable and undeniable evidence that Christians are different, that we live differently, that when people see us, their hearts and minds would be stirred at their core. Why? Because they're looking at true believers. Let's pray.